and climaxed on Easter Sunday with the resurrection with him alive from the grave so that you and I could one day be made alive, be made alive to God, um, be those who could have part of our story that Christ has risen us up from death to life. And so this week, um, our times of gathering on uh, this day, but also on Good Friday and Easter, will be centered around that, uh, the great truth that we can be made alive through Christ, uh, through his death and resurrection. And so, praise be to God uh, that that's what he has done for us by his grace and how marvelous it is. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, are grateful for this day, this time of celebration, where we who have been made alive through um, the work of, of Christ, um, God, that amazing grace that we just sung about, uh, Father, uh, and it's because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which we focus on this holy week. Uh, we're grateful for it. Uh, Father, as we do gather today, I'm reminded to pray for those also in, in need, um, in need of our prayers who have requested them. Uh, for Diana Webb's mom, who's been battling an infection for a couple weeks, we continue to pray for her. Uh, a note uh, I received this morning on, uh, for Nafion, uh, dear friend in Papua New Guinea, his wife Janet, uh, who's in critical condition this morning because of malaria that is in, impacting her brain. God, we, we pray uh, for Janet, for Nafion and his family, and uh, lift them up to you, God. Um, Lord, we also uh, give praise for news of, of Janie Rains, for, for Debbie Bird's mom, whose leg is, is healing and, and doing so much better. Uh, we're thankful, God, for uh, that, and uh, God, just your healing power. Uh, Father, today, again, as we look at your word, we uh, look at a word that, that is alive, uh, that is living and active, uh, and Father, I, I pray um, that it would stir our hearts that as we look at this, this timeless and, and great text that speaks of your abounding grace, God, that we would sit back and, and be amazed uh, truly at overflowing grace, abounding grace. Um, and so, Lord, speak to our hearts today. We do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Hope nobody needs to ex uh, exit and go to the bathroom now, but. <laughs> um, that is the Spokane Falls, uh, not a, a place that maybe many ha have been to before. My oldest daughter and I got the, the blessing of, of getting to go to that uh, this past weekend. Uh, we were there. Uh, she uh, gets the privilege of, of, of playing volleyball and uh, some of that allows her to, to travel, and so we got to enjoy uh, the town as well. Uh, found out that uh, Spokane is uh, the proud home of Gonzaga. Uh, I learned how to say that two different ways there. was told both times it was wrong, but yet was told it was right too. So I, anyway, I have no, no idea. Um, but uh, they were hyped on uh, the Bulldogs, a beautiful campus over obviously that school and 
the final four that weekend. Uh, but what also was hyped up was uh, that river called the Spokane River that uh, feeds into the falls there. The falls are some 150 feet uh, in height. Uh, but those falls are powerful. Uh, they are uh, just overwhelming and uh, abounding right now with, with water. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful sight. And on the plane ride back, I, I started reflecting on just coming home and, and different things and uh, started studying and, and thinking through uh, this, this day uh, on Palm Sunday, knowing what, what the Lord had laid on my heart to speak about. And I, I quickly was drawn back to these falls, um, how abounding they are, how powerful they are, overwhelming they are, how forceful they are, and I begin to reflect on, on Jesus and how he enters Jerusalem. And when he in, enters Jerusalem, he, he does so as an overwhelming, overflowing, powerful force of grace. You see, that's what entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We're told in different accounts the events of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. And one of the accounts tells us that he looked over the city. He was burdened. He was burdened because as he looked out, he saw a a people trapped in sin. People who were misdirected, misguided. People that were uh, led in, in falsehood by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those teachers of the law who misdirected many of them. And Jesus saw people heavy laden, greatly burdened, and he was overwhelmed by it. And so as you think about Palm Sunday today, I want you to think about Jesus, this amazing force, this overwhelming, abounding force of grace, because that's what entered Jerusalem. As the week would go on, obviously we see this beautiful grace expressed and the death of Jesus on the cross, and then the climax of it with his resurrection. And what was increasing and abounding during the week of Holy Week was the grace of God and the life of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at Romans chapter five, with Palm Sunday most definitely in mind, I want us to stand back, be amazed, be in great wonder, as we think about the overflowing of grace of Jesus Christ that makes you and I alive, that makes our souls alive. That's our only hope today is this abounding grace, and that's what Paul speaks of. So if we can look at this text today, these two verses will be our, our main focus in Romans 5, 20 through 21. If you can keep it open, that'd be great, because I'm going to refer back to it. Um, And then we're going to look at some scripture texts surrounding it as well. Uh, But Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. Listen again as Dan read um, this as well for us just a bit ago. It says, the law came in or entered in so that the transgression, maybe your translation says trespass, would increase or abound all the more. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want you this morning to feel that wonder 
that amazement over this grace that is spoken of by Paul. It's overflowing, it's abounding that comes through Jesus Christ. But to do that first, we must understand the situation, the condition, obviously, that we're in, that this text talks about. Grace is abounding, Paul says. It's overflowing. It's increasing. But first, what does he deal with? What's the first thing that Paul deals with in this text? If we look at verse 20, it's the increase. It's the power. It's the overwhelming force. It's the waterfall that will take out and destroy anything in its path. And that's the abundance of sin. Sin is on the increase all the more. It's more blatant. It's more obvious. That doesn't take much for us to realize. We can wake up in the morning and grab our phones and look at the news and look what happened overnight or what happened the day before. We can see how sin overwhelms humanity. We get that. We understand that. And so Paul says that here. He, he says the law came in. It, it entered in so that transgression would increase. We'll talk more about that in a second. But he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death. And so Paul focuses first on the condition of man. And he does so in, in two ways with one dreadful result. And the first thing he talks about is the word sin. Uh, what, what is sin? The sin that's increasing that, that Paul talks about that so blatantly, obviously overwhelms the condition of mankind. What is this idea of sin? That's the first thing he mentioned. Sin is, is this. I always like to find different definitions that, that help us understand sin. And we've all got maybe different ones we've heard or carried on through life. But one of the ones that I read this week in my study was Christopher Ashe defined sin as, as this. He says, it is to forfeit the unspoiled image of God. To forfeit the glory of God by worshiping anything other than God himself. If you think about Paul's writing here in Romans, that's how Paul defines sin. In fact, in chapter 1 of his writings, if you want to turn back just a couple of pages, in chapter 1 and in verses 18 and on, Paul speaks about the condition of man there. And if you would look at verse um, 22, he talks about the people there in the first century specifically uh, in Rome and surrounding areas. He says, they are professing to be wise, but they became fools. And listen to what he says right here. Is they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so what is Paul saying there? That these are those who have exchanged the glory of God and now are worshiping something else. Graven images, different images. They're worshiping creation. And then look at verse 26. He goes on. He says, uh, for this reason God gave them over uh, to, or no, not uh, 26, 24, excuse me. He says, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then verse 25, they exchanged. There's that word exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so, and so what is sin? Sin is that act by which we worship something other than God himself, real simply. We choose to worship 
a created thing other than God. We forfeit as a result the glory of God. You and I were created, the Bible tells us, to worship God, to live for His glory, to honor Him. And so when we fail to do that, the Bible calls that sin. And then he uses the word transgression. He says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. What's a transgression or a trespass? Uh, real simply, it means to break a command of God. Um, when you think back through Scripture, when you think back through humanity, the origination of sin, where do we sit, enter in? We go back to Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 3. In fact, Romans 5 helps us see that as well. Paul will refer back to the sin of Adam in chapter 5. But you think about Scripture, it speaks of sin, the sin of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And, and we see transgression as well. So we see both these things in Adam. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, what happened? Adam sinned by what? By desiring the fruit rather than desiring to please God. And that's that idea of sin. That we desire to worship something else instead of God himself. And that's what Adam did and not only that, Adam transgressed. How did he transgress? In Genesis 2, 16, 17, Adam trespassed or transgressed against the law of God. He broke God's command. You remember what God said? God said, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet Adam, looking face to face in the command of God, will choose willfully to break God's command and transgress. And so scripture tells us in Romans 5, verse 12 through 14, a few verses before our main text today, it tells us, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because why? All sin. For until the law, sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, I tell my kids this uh, a lot of times, especially uh, my nine-year-old these days. We, we tell them, hey, listen, when you're reading something uh, for homework, how many times do you need to read it? Just once? No, right? We, we encourage them, and, hey, you've got you to read this thing at least three times. And, and that's how I roll. When I read something like Romans 5, 12 through 14, I've got to read that at least three times just to kind of have an idea of what's going on, even just to, to get in the ballpark. And so what Paul's talking about here <clears throat> is not easy stuff. It's not necessarily easy stuff to, to hang on to and, and, and understand real simply this morning here in chapter 5. But I, but I want to just, if I could, and summarize what he says in verse 12 and 14 because it's so significant. But Adam is the head, what, what Paul is saying. He is the head of fallen humanity. He is this terrible head of one fallen humanity. And we see with Adam the origination of sin that has been inherited by all of humanity, all of us in here, born in depravity, born into sin. The result has been, as Paul says, that sin now reigned in death. And so what we see is death has reigned from Adam to Moses and even now. But human beings only transgress, according to what Paul says, when they have 
been given the command of God in God's law. Now, some of us might read that and we might think, well, shoot, why was a law given, right? We'd be off the hook. No, the, what Paul is saying here, he, he's not saying that the absence of the law, specifically the law of Moses, he's not saying that the absence of that law would make people innocent by any means. He's not saying that. For sin we see was in the world, death reigned from the beginning with Adam. And so what Paul was referring to was that the presence of the law, the law that was given at Mount Sinai that we read about in Exodus, the law that was given, that was handed down through Moses to the Israelites, did this. It it made guilty people even more blatantly and obviously guilty. That's what the law did. What the law does is it illuminates sin. And that's the idea that that Paul has in mind here. That's why he says in Romans 5.20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. And so when our sinful natures come face to face with the commands of God, what, what do sinful people do? Start breaking it. That's what Adam did. That's what the Israelites did. So we're not only guilty sinners, but like Adam, we're guilty trespassers. And so we know this. The law was never meant to save. It's not why God gave it to the Israelites. It's not why he has given it to us. But it illuminates sin. It exposes behavior that is contrary to God's will. You think about it in your home. When you give rules to your kids, um, what, we give rules to them, right? To, to help them stay in, in the bounds, to, 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 to care for them. And so what comes out when they break them, it's blatant, it's obvious, it's, it's sin. And so it is with, with the law of God. It caused the blatant and ever so evident increase of sin. One would say it, it only made things worse. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is bad. Paul would say, no, by all means, the law is good. But, but why? Why is the law good? Why is this idea that the law coming in, yet transgression increased, why would Paul say that this law is good? Well, it shows us something. It shows you and I our great need and that you and I cannot fix our problems. We hate to hear that, Right? We love to be able to fix things. We love to be able to say, hey, I got this. I can handle this. Sin, we cannot fix. We cannot fix it. And so the law points to the one who could save. It could fix our issues. And so by Adam's act, sin's dominion, sin's rule, sin's reign is evident. It's increasing. We see it. It's blatant. It's obvious. And it resulted in eternal death and still does for many that Adam, or excuse me, Paul shares this. Why does he share this? Paul shares this, this thought of sin, this thought of transgression, this thought of sin reigning in death, this powerful force, because it is. But he shares this because he wants to compare it to something even more powerful, something even more increasing, something more abundant, this unstoppable force. And what is that? It's the overflowing grace of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see 
this powerful sin, but then he wants us to see, wow, look how powerful, look how amazing grace is. And so look again at the text, if you would, through some different lens as we look through the lens of grace and what Paul talks about. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, ever abundant, ever increasing, overflowing, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through what? Through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what is the grace of God? We define sin, transgression. What is grace? What does that, that mean? And they think grace, real simply, is, is God's free, undeserved, loving kindness and favor. We, we don't deserve God's loving kindness. We don't deserve his mercy but yet he freely grants it to us. God's grace is stronger. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it's more powerful than sin and death. It overflows much more than sin can even spread. That's the power of grace. In fact, one Puritan wrote this and said, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. Isn't that amazing? There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. That helps me remember that when I look at the world and I see what's going on and when I even look at myself, how awesome it's, it's, it's to know that, hey, Jesus is full of grace. Think about John 1, 14 and 17. The Bible talks about Jesus. The Apostle John writes this. It says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. Full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. Verse 17, he tells us, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So just as the sin of one, Adam, led to universal disaster, what do we learn that the one obedience of Jesus has this gracious power to undo all that disaster. That's how powerful God's grace is. So look at the text again. Look what it says. Verse 21. It says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. And so what does that mean? A grace comes in, it overthrows, it dethrones the reign of sin and death in people's lives. But but How? How does it do that? How does it work? Paul says here, grace would reign through what? Through righteousness. To eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so grace reigns through the means or the agency of what? Of righteousness. That's how it works. But what is this righteousness that that Paul is speaking of? Where, Where does this come from? Well, the word righteousness here is the idea, it's the state of acceptance or approval before God, which brings about this reigning of grace in one's life. And it, as a result, dethrones the reign of death. So whose righteousness is this? It's a good question to ask. Is it Christ? Is it, is it ours? And so look at the next verse in chapter 6, verse 1. Ignore the division of chapters here, but look at, what it says here, it asks the question. Paul asked the question, what shall we say then? In response to what he just said, he says, so what shall we say? What, what's he saying, what shall we say in regards to? I, I think what he's referring to is this abounding grace. What shall we say about this abounding, overflowing grace? 
how shall we respond? And listen to what he responds with. He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase or keep abounding even more? So it's this idea, well, I'm going to keep sinning so that grace will keep flowing. No, no, Paul says, no, no. And how, but how many times do we go with the thought of, well, I'm going to do this one sin or I'm going to do this one act knowing that God is abounding in grace? And so Paul addresses that. Paul speaks to that, and he says in verse 2, may it never be, may we never do such a thing. And so then he says, how shall we, and so he's going to answer the, the question of righteousness here, how shall we who died to st- sin still live in it? I love what Paul does there. He almost, he asks a question, and when he does, he, he answers really um, a question in asking it. I don't know if you kind of get that, but it seems as though he does. Look at it again, the question he asks in verse two. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying that this grace that's abounding, this grace that is all-powerful, this grace that is overflowing, what does it do? It kills sin. It, it, it produces righteousness, it kills sin, it produces righteousness, and this righteousness, it's, it's freely, we can use the word imputed, it's freely transferred, it's freely gifted to us, and it's caused one, according to verse two, to be dead to sin, making them right before, justified before a holy and just God, who requires that, that sin, guilty people, pay the price. And so this is amazing. He says in verse two, listen again, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he's making a statement that what grace does, it comes in and it kills sin. It is the only force grace is that can come and deal with sin. You and I can't kill our sin. You and I cannot make ourselves righteous. We can't read this text and say, okay, listen, I, I, gotta, I gotta walk out tomorrow, uh, today, get better, uh, try to read the whole Bible in the next 30 days, and I'm just gonna try to do all this stuff, all this stuff, all this stuff, all this stuff, and so that, that I can have grace reigning in my life. Paul is saying here, hold the cart, man. Hold on. Jesus kills sin. His power, his grace is sufficient for us. We're weak, we're fallen. We need his grace. And so it's not our righteousness. It's not, uh, Paul's not saying here, walk out of here and, and hey, by your righteousness, you're going you're gonna to take out the sin of the world. No, what he's saying here is that grace does that. God's overflowing, abundant grace. That's the answer to our sin problem. And how does one become right? It's by the grace of God. Some other verses to help us. The Bible tells us, one many of us know in here in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so we are justified, we are made right. We have this righteousness before our God who is holy and just, how? By grace alone. We receive it empty-handed by faith alone, through Jesus alone. And it's this righteousness that grains to us, Paul says in verse 21, eternal life. Eternal life. And so through the substitutionary death of Jesus, 
by which our sin is counted to him and his righteousness now counted to us. We do nothing for that transfer, that great exchange to happen. It's all by the grace of God. That's how we have sin, or excuse me, how, how we have grace reigning in our life is through that righteousness that is granted to us by Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 1, 6 through 8, Jesus' grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what? His grace that has been lavished on us, ever abundant, ever increasing. And so this is how the grace of God abounds. It, it overflows to where now grace reigns in one's life who has received the righteousness of God. It dethrones death and the reign of sin. It brings eternal life. And that comes through the means of Christ's death and through his resurrection, which renders death powerless, making you and I alive. That's why Paul says in chapter five, verse 17, he says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, they will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so as we read that, these, these two verses, this should cause our hearts to leap. and say, wow, what amazing grace. This overabundant, increasing grace, how amazing it is. And so real simply today, do, do you know this overflowing grace? Do, do you know this abundant grace? The grace of God that has been expressed through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. The Bible says we come to face to face with the grace of God that you and I are to trust in Christ, to believe in Christ, to place our faith in Christ. The one who has received and placed their faith in Jesus Christ now has grace reigning in their life. Death has been kicked off the throne. And now that the overwhelming power of grace is in our life, we too, as Paul says in verse two of chapter six, can experience what it means to be dead to sin. To live a life now where we don't have to sin. But instead, grace Increasing evermore. Now when I think about this, when I step back and think about just how amazing God's grace is and, and, and what God has done for us in Christ, because that's what this week is all about. And it makes me think of two things just as we wrap up. Just want to give you some things to think about as we leave. As the, as the church, as we think about this week, as we think about this ever-increasing grace, this overflowing grace that overcomes sin and death. What are a couple things that, that you and I shall value as a result? We could say there's many things, and I would agree with that. But what's a couple things just to walk away with? I think the, the first thing of two is that we should value the church. And Paul talks about the church in a few different ways or I should say, refers to them in, in a few different ways. If you look at chapter five, verse 17, he says, those who receive the abundance, great, uh, the abundance of grace, who, who is that? That's the church. 
Who are those? It's, it's the church. It's this new humanity. The old humanity that is still alive and present today is, is that which has been affected by Adam, where sin and death reign, but the church is a new humanity. Those who have now received the grace of God, who have now received eternal life, have been transferred into this new humanity. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 18 and 19, where he talks about the church. He says, uh, the justification of life to all men. Who, who are those who receive that? The church. In verse 19, he says, the many will be made righteous. Who are the many that will be made righteous through Jesus Christ? It is the church. It's this new humanity that has experienced this overflowing grace. And so at the same time, we are to be marked by that. We're to live a life of grace, expressing that, just as Jesus has and did. We are to express that same grace toward one another. Colossians chapter three is a good passage just to think about as we think about, okay, what does this look like for me as one who has experienced this ever-increasing grace? How do I express that? amongst my brothers and sisters here in the church. Paul says, so as those, in verse 12 of chapter three of Colossians, he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on a heart of compassion, put on a heart of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're to do that. Uh, We're to be clothed with that. By the grace of God, we can put on these things and live this way. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one another. Just as the Lord forgave you, how did the Lord forgive us? Overflowing grace. And he says, so should you forgive one another. This should be expressed in our homes, expressed in the church, as we live amongst one another as this new humanity. And then he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which we, uh, indeed, you were called in one body, the church. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another. This is what the church looks like with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your heart, to God. Overflowing grace expressed in this new humanity that we would be gracious toward each other, loving toward each other just as Christ has been toward us, that we would value the church. The second as we think about this, as we step back and as John and band starts to come up, I want to think about this second point. Not only do we value the church, but lastly, in, in light of God's overflowing grace, that we would value reaching out to others outside the church with this Overflowing grace with the gospel. Real simple to talk about, a a simple point we've heard before, but I want you to think about this. Just as Adam's sin reaches out all through humanity and it is spreading, overflowing, it is abundant, it is blatant, it is obvious. Paul wants us in response to this as his church to take the gospel, the message of Christ, Christ's righteousness that that is reaching out, that is ever increasing, he wants us to take that 
to humanity. He wants us to take that to our neighbors, to our friends, without distinction. He wants us to take the gospel. That's what God is doing. This overflowing grace through Christ's church, he is extending the grace of God to others. That's how the grace of God increases today, is through the church. That, that you and I would be the hands and foot of Jesus Christ speaking about the gospel. And through the sovereign wills, through the sovereign grace and work of God, God increases his grace to the hearts of many, dethroning death that grace would reign. But he has called you and I to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors, to be his speakers, to be his audio and visual of what grace looks like. And so that we, when we think about this overflowing grace, as we think about Holy Week and the increasing of grace through the death and the resurrection of Christ, that we would sit back and be amazed. Not sit back and just simply be amazed at, look what I've got, but also sit back and think about, oh wow, look what I could share. Look what I get to share. That's what God so longs for us. And so again, have you experienced God's overflowing grace today. Do you know it? If not, I want to encourage you today as we reflect on man's condition. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in need of God's grace. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot fix the problems that we have. We've heard here today, we all have this problem. None of us are without excuse. The Bible calls us to believe, to trust in Christ, to make us right before God so that grace would reign and dethrone death in our lives and that we would have eternal life. I pray today, if you're there, that you would believe in Christ, ever-increasing grace. Let's pray.